and we're live. Hi, I'm Connor Fowler. And I'm Matt Smith. And today, it is our honor to welcome the big gun in Boston's, the maven in Madras, the titan in Tiger Stripe, the Levi's Luminary, the mini maestro, the Oxford Cloth Overlord, the ruler in Ralph, the padre from the bay, the guru of good times, chairman of the Ivy League Intelligentsia, a man once familiar with Nantucket, here's Zach DeLuca at Newton Street Vintage. Wow. Hey, thanks. That's that's a killer intro. That's far and away the greatest intro I've ever heard. We try. Of myself. We I try. Mean. We try. <laughs> it's the greatest yeah. way I've ever been introduced. <laughs> a lot of time into our intro, and I, I help here and there, but every single guest, it's hilarious how they respond to it. <laughs> I haven't been the mayor of Madras or whatever for quite some time, but I appreciate the throwback. That goes all the way back. That's like the whole trajectory. We went through your whole shit. So <laughs> we are we are no very thing. cool. Yeah. Yeah. We we like to be thorough. That's that's for sure. Uh so let's get started. So where is Newton Street? Oh yeah. Uh it's funny, I get asked that a lot. Um it's a street, random street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I lived a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, when I when I started doing clothes, um, this is like ancient history now. This is like, we're talking 09, 2010. Um, I was living on this, this apartment in Cambridge with my girlfriend, and I was uh, buying a ton of vintage uh, and I also wanted to start my own like made-to-measure tailoring brand. Um, so I started this little thing called the Newton Street Suit Company, which was mm. just a gigantic failure. <laughs> um, I think I, I, got, I had suits made for myself, which was fun. Um, and then I had a couple of customers that I was able to like make and design suits for, but it kind of went nowhere. So that was like the start of like Newton Street. It was called the Newton Street Suit Company. I had like a stamp made. I was like DIY doing tailor tags with like a hand stamp and that whole thing. It was 2010. <laughs> it was a very 2010 move. Um, and then when I started doing vintage, Newton Street Suit Co. became Newton Street Vintage, and I was doing these pop-up markets in Boston called the Top Shelf Flea. You guys remember those? Course, you remember uh, Giuseppe and Affordable Wardrobe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so he started this cool thing in Boston called the Top Shelf Flea, which was kind of like a response to whatever that um, – uh, a continuous lean was doing down in New York at that time. I forget what that oh, flea was called. Yeah. Uh, um, what was that? Because Yeah, this is all like times. This is ancient, ancient stuff. But anyway, that's yeah, that's how Newton Street Vintage came about. And then I started the Instagram handle um, and did nothing with it for years. Like forgot that I had it. Um, and then years later, I just picked it back up, and that was my account, so that's my name. Um, but I haven't lived there for like 10, 10 years at least. <laughs> so, Zach, where, where are you from? I'm from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. Mm. Yeah, I'm not a coaster in any sense, east or west. I'm a okay. Rust Belt adjacent. Yeah, yeah. Do, what, like, in terms of clothing, like, 
while you were growing up, like what kind of, you know, what kind of stuff did you see uh, in that part of Pennsylvania? So, so like I had no concept, like vintage clothing hadn't entered my consciousness yet. Um, preppy was a word that was used, but preppy in Western PA in late 90s and early 2000s meant one thing and that was Abercrombie and Fitch. Right, right. That's what preppy was. I went to a high school that was absolutely obsessed with Abercrombie and Fitch. You did not wear anything but Abercrombie and Fitch. And it's weird like I don't I don't remember there being a lot of like subcultures in my high school. There weren't like punk kids and skater kids and indie kids and preppy kids. It was like there was Abercrombie and Fitch, and then there was a bunch of people that were just wearing clothing. <laughs> like it was, right. it was a weird, a weird world in in 1998, 2022. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's also, you know, that's kind of the, I guess, beginning of the rise of like mass internet too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, totally. Like I grew up in a small town, had a very similar experience. Although American Eagle was also factored in there because it was the closest <laughs> store. Oh yeah. But, oh, American Eagle yeah, was a thing, but, and that's what you—that's what you got if you couldn't go to the Abercrombie and Fitch store. It was a little bit cheaper, and I remember like learning the differences between like that's sort of how I got into clothing. Actually, like like observing clothing and and picking out details was by basically like comparing Abercrombie and American Eagle. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. I, I <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny to think about in hindsight because like that was you know more than 20 years ago but at the same time like if you had a couple of malls close to you that's literally all that you could get mm-hmm. and so you know or like, you could go uh, like your j crew big- but that was a very in sort of in its infancy i guess at the time yeah that really I came mean, later mm-hmm. i mean it exists yeah, yeah. it existed it but it was like a catalog brand. brand it wasn't right. like as much of a mall thing until um the sort of mid 2000s i think Right, right. Yeah. So, and, and so, Zach, where are you living now? I live in the Bay Area of California, near San Francisco. Nice. And how long have you been out there? Uh, we moved out here in summer of 2020, so it's been a couple years now. Okay. Dope. Dope. I love it out here. Has it, do you think, changed the way that you dress? Oh, a hundred percent. Well, so there are a few reasons that sort of changed the way that I dress. Um, but being out here, I definitely invested in some flip flops. Flip flops suddenly became acceptable. Um, you know, being into vintage, like I don't surf, but like there's certainly facets of like old school surf culture that have like bled into vintage culture that I think are cool and not particularly unique to me. Like that's just a vintage thing. Um, and then climate wise, like work wise, everything sort of changed. So I work from home. So like everything that I wear is really stuff that I'm going to wear around the house. Um, and then also like, it's just warmer. Like I, I don't need a ton of outerwear. Uh, you know, I can't, I love Shetland sweaters, but I just can't yeah, wear them here cause it never of... gets cold enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I like, I can't sit around the house in a Shetland sweater. I'll just sweat to death. Um, so it sort of changed the choices that I make clothing wise, but also like the vibe of how I dress. I've gotten a little bit more work wary, um, suddenly moved to the, to the West coast and it 
suddenly felt okay to like invest in a legitimate cowboy hat, <laughs> which is probably not something I would have done uh, back in back in Boston or Cambridge. Um, you know, so getting a little Western with it. My wife, who actually knows how to ride a horse, thinks it's hilarious because oh, if you were to see me on a, if you were to see me on the horse, I would be the least cowboy thing you've ever seen in your <laughs> life. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and basically, I, I put on my my Western shit and I drive around in a white VW Jetta with a baby on board sticker on it. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <dude>. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Uh, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Ivy style. So we know you went to Boston university. Did being in Boston influence your Ivy interests and what drew you to Ivy style in the first place? Yeah. Um, so being in Boston eventually sort of led me to Ivy, but not at first. Uh, when I was in college, I got into vintage, but it was like, um, this would have been like 2002 to 2006. So this was like the peak of the garage rock revolution. Mm -hmm. And I had like, when I was in high school, so this is probably a backtrack. Um, I got into vintage in high school without really fully understanding what I was into, but I was really into like 70s music. Um, and the other big thing that I think has influenced why I'm into clothing in general, regardless of the genre of clothing, uh, is that up in, from about second grade up until high school, I was homeschooled. Um, so I, and I, I don't have like older brothers who like initiated me into pop culture. So basically when I got to, got to high school, it was like being like, dropped into pop pop culture without a map and i just had to kind of find my way around oh, um, shit. okay so it was like i didn't have like a, it was like a, it was like a blank canvas um and i had to catch up really quickly uh and for whatever reasons like i tended to gravitate toward older stuff like i wasn't necessarily into what was popular even though i may have dressed like it at the time like my taste in music was just sort of not like it just sort of sh was gravitated toward the past. Um, maybe cause I had older parents, you know, my dad was, my dad grew up in the fifties. My mom grew up in the sixties. Um, so for a kid, my age, my parents were a little bit older and they had sort of introduced me to the music of their times. Um, so like, I remember, getting really into music from the seventies. And I was really into Springsteen in particular. Like he was my first like <laughs> pop culture reference, pop culture icon. Um, and like, if you remember like early, early Springsteen, he didn't look like he did in the eighties. Right. He was this skinny dude with a beard and a big floppy hat. And he wore like bootcut jeans mm -hmm. and Chuck Taylors. Um, <laughs> And so I, I started getting, like, for whatever reason, I started gravitating toward, like, that kind of a look. And I was a little bit, like, out of place in high school. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was kind of a misfit. I felt really different because I hadn't gone to school up until that point. Um, so, like, instead of, like, I, and I tried to fit in for a while, right? I tried to, like, wear lots of Abercrombie and shit. Um, and then I decided to sort of go the other way, like, later in high school. And I started dressing a little bit more, like... Bruce, essentially. Uh, so I used to do funny shit, right? Like I, I, I sort of, you learn that like his jeans just look different. I didn't really know why, but I realized that they were like slightly flared at the bottom. So I used to like, honestly, swear to God, I used to wear like my sister's flared American Eagle 
jeans because that was the only way you could get like flared yeah. pants back in the day. Fuck yeah, dude. The girl yeah. jeans. I mean, the girl <laughs> jeans was an institution. This was this was before like this was before like boot cut jeans became a big thing for dudes. So like I would I, and like I wouldn't do it every day, but like, you know, I would like wear them. Yeah. I mean Honestly, like in the early 2000s, and they weren't like studded Britney Spears jeans or anything like that. They were just like a little bit little rise, a little bit flared leg, like you know, yeah. hey, it's like a five seventeen, basically. Yeah, <laughs> pants are unisex. We know this um, now. So anyway, when I got to college, which was kind of like the the question, right? Like, did being in Boston, um, I discovered a vintage store and this guy owned this awesome vintage store and it was just full of like 60s and 70s stuff. Not like super rare stuff, but he had all the jeans that I wanted. He had orange tab, 517 Levi's. He had the white tab, flared cords. So like I kind of went nuts for it and just stocked up on that stuff. And then like I said, this was like garage rock revolution. I kind of wanted to look like I was in the strokes you know what I mean? Like right. on a on a good day, on a bad day, I probably looked like I was in jet. Right. Um, <laughs> That's a deep reference. Um, you know, we were going to all those shows. Like I know you guys are like from the hardcore scene. I have no connection to hardcore whatsoever, but I was like an aspiring like indie rock guy in the early two thousands. Although I didn't go that deep into it, um, but like. Yeah, so I would go to shows, and I also this is probably worth mentioning. I wasn't bald; I had a huge, like, floppy Bob Dylan afro. Nice. Um, so I kind of looked more the part than I do now, um, and that was kind of my look all through college. Uh, and then when did I get into like Ivy and suits? Um, so after college, I got kind of a job that I didn't really want, but it I needed it to make money. Um, and I was working as like an office assistant at this like private equity fund, this really like high profile financial services place. Sure. Um, and I didn't fit in there at all. It wasn't like I, I was still had like writing aspirations. I was this arty kid. I did, you know, I did, I knew it wasn't my scene or my culture, but I had to wear a suit every day. So, and I don't know what it was about like a vintage suit, but I started dressing around this time, like pretty hardcore, like 1960s reenactor. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like I mentioned, I, I like, I already like the music from the era. So, like, and I'm talking like, like skinny lapel, skinny tie, tab collar. And I was getting all this stuff from these same stores uh, where I was buying the, you know, the 70s stuff previously. So that was kind of like my way to look to, to okay, I got to wear a suit to work, but fuck you. I'm going to wear a suit that looks like I'm in a Motown band yeah. from 1965 <laughs> and not, you know, working at an investment bank. <laughs> uh, right. So that kind of led me to like tailoring and suiting and then like through research that kind of distilled into like, well, what I was actually into was this thing called Ivy and it actually had like this history in Boston uh, and New England. And that led me to learning about like the natural shoulder and the button down collar and all those details that were sort of within this much broader like world of just looking like you're in 1966. Um and that's when I really got into, like, I, I started wanting to, like, work in clothing um, from that point on. And that was kind of the dream, to, like, work in vintage, to work in clothing. Um, 
but yeah, that's that's sort of what that's how Boston kind of kind of worked worked that sort of look into my into my deal. Oh hell yeah! And, and so I'm I'm assuming that that's how you ended up at the Andover shop. Yeah. So this would have been. Yeah, uh, I ended up at the end of our shop kind of roundabout way. Um, so I got really into tailoring. Uh, and this is while I was working at this office job. Um, and sort of the first step was I thought I wanted to be like a legit bespoke tailor. And when I say into tailoring, I meant I enjoyed wearing suits. Right. Um, right, right. So like, and I wore suits everywhere. Like there are photos of me at like somebody's backyard barbecue in a corduroy suit. Like I wore suits all the time everywhere. I wore suits to like post college house parties that were yeah. still kind of college-y. I wore a suit everywhere. I wore bow ties. I mean, I was like, I was that guy. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we all were that guy. Yeah. Time. I was just about to yeah. say, everyone yeah. who listens to this show is that person at some point in yeah. their life. And I was so like confident too. I was like, "Yes, I found the look that I'm gonna die in." Right? Like, <laughs> ties. Yeah, bury me in a bow tie. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, how did I get to the end? So like, I I, just, I really wanted to work in clothing, but like I said, I didn't have any experience. Um, so I I had this idea. I I I had been down in New York. There was this guy at the time, Danny. I forget his last name, Lewis, I think. And he he had this brand called Brooklyn Tailors. You ever heard you remember him? Oh mm-hmm. yeah, dude. Well so I was that's that's a throwback. Yeah. Um I think he's still around. I think his business is still doing well. Uh and this was back yeah. when he was literally like doing a made to measure business out of his apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, and I had I had wanted to get a made to measure suit. Like that's a thing, like your first made to measure suit. Um, but obviously I wanted to do it for on, on the cheap and blah, 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 blah. So like I, I had emailed back and forth with Danny and I ended up going down to New York to get a suit made and the suit came out fine. Um, but over the course of like dealing with him, he mentioned that his tailors were in Nepal and I was like, Oh, I wonder if I could do this. So like the whole bus ride back from New York, I was like scribbling in my notebook about like design suit ideas and like waste like what i was gonna make and that's kind of when the name newton street suit co came about uh and so i gave it a try um danny had something i didn't which was retail tailoring and measurement experience <laughs> uh, so the first couple of suits i tried for myself and they came back okay i'm sure they're they're like buried in facebook photos of me somewhere wearing these suits um <laughs> That was me trying to just like bootstrap my own tailoring business as like a side hustle while I was working at this investment bank and wearing lots of 60s clothing. Um, and the other thing that, that like that helped me get, you know, my start is kind of a weird term because it's not at all what I do for a living now. Um, but like I managed to talk my way into this other guy in Boston who had like a legit made to measure business selling like Martin Greedfield made suits. Um, oh, and the interesting, the way, the way that I got him to pay attention to me and like, let me work for him for free uh, was I rewrote the copy on his website and I got a friend of mine to do a quick and dirty like web design for him, which we'll come back to later. Cause that's more germane to my like current career. Um, but anyway, so this guy, this guy, Craig, uh, 
who had this made to measure business, uh, brings me on board as like his intern. And so I get to learn a little bit of the ropes about how to work with a made to measure factory, how to work with Greenfield. I think what he was actually hoping for was that I would bring him a bunch of like really rich dudes from the investment bank, which I tried to do, but it didn't really work. Um, and so that got me enough, just like just enough of a resume uh, that I was able to go down to the Andover shop when they were hiring and like get a job at the Andover shop. And I think the Andover shop has this weird, like, it's also super weird to be talking about the Andover shop now because <laughs> it does feel like, like a bajillion years ago. Um, right, right. But it, it, uh, it does have this like slightly like exclusive vibe. Um, but it was not difficult to get a job at the Andover shop. I just put on my best suit, had a quick interview, and then started the next day. Um, so that's oh, how I that's how I found my way there. Oh, that's awesome! And then you, after the Andover shop, you eventually moved to Ralph, right? Yeah. So um, that was sort of, and that was sort of my last, the final act of my uh, like menswear career. Um, right. So I was working at the Andover shop, um, which was much less fun than people would think. Um, it was pretty dead most of the time. So you, there was a lot of standing around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wasn't making very much money. Um, so I decided to, to hop on over. Uh, like Working at the Andover shop was interesting. Um, you know, and I was like enamored with Charlie, the owner, because he's like this menswear legend, and you know, yeah, and like, I got to learn at the feet. Yeah, like you know him. <laughs> so. Yeah, everybody knows who he was. Like, uh, you know, crazy famous people would come into the shop occasionally, but almost all the time, it was pretty dead in there. Um, yeah, and then I wasn't like doing a whole lot, right? Like it was like retail, but. You know, the, it, it, I was hoping that I could like learn at the feet of the master, right? But I was kind of just like a shop boy, and there wasn't a lot of shop boy activity to do. Um, so we spent a lot of time dusting off the neckties, and um, <laughs> so when the when the position at Ralph opened up, um, I figured it could be one more money, and two, like I might actually be able to like learn more. Um, so, and that was another place where I was like, oh man, I was like, am I handsome enough to work at Ralph Lauren? Am I? <laughs> like, <laughs> and like, are the people there going to be really snooty and like luxury minded and off putting? Um, and to this day, like the people that I work with there are some of the nicest, most down to earth. Like I still talk to my old, my old manager from Ralph, the Ralph store. Um, this was, when I say I went to Ralph, work for Ralph Lauren, I meant I was a, I was a, sales associate in a pretty nice luxury flagship store. Uh, they call it like the mini mansion. It's a, it's not at the scale of the Rhinelander mansion, but it sells a lot of the same stuff. And it's in this really beautiful, like four story townhouse on Newbury street in Boston. So it's like a, it's like a legit, like big deal, Ralph Lauren store. Um, right. But it's still retail, right? Like retail's retail is mm -hmm. retail. Um, you know, we sold all the polo stuff on the ground floor, um, but I got to work on the second floor where we sold luxury tailoring. Um, and I got to be like the made to measure guy who took all the measurements and worked with the factory and stuff like that. So that was cool. Um, I loved working. I had so much fun working at the store. 
Um, the people were great. You could go absolutely all out full Ralph five days a week if you wanted to, and no one would bat an eyelash, right? Like you could just bust out crazy Ralph Lauren looks if you wanted to. Um, so it was a lot of fun in that regard. I made zero dollars and zero cents. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was stressful. Um, and I wasn't like young at this point either. I was like pushing 30. Um, so yeah, and that, that was sort of Ralph Lauren and that was kind of where not my love of clothing ended, but definitely my like desire to do it for a living. Right. Yeah. It definitely takes a special like type of mindset and person, especially with like how so many of these jobs are like structured, like the commission based or, or whatever. Um, yeah, it was, it was rough. Cause like, so what was interesting about the Boston store is that the Boston store had the number one seller in the entire uh, Ralph Lauren company. She worked on the women's floor um, and she made more money than like the next three sales, three people on the list combined. Oh, she sold shit. everything. Yeah. They brought in all the, all like the super, super rare collection pieces, the stuff that goes down the runway they brought in just for her to sell. Um, but from a men's perspective, like selling in Boston is tough. Like the Boston market yeah. for men's clothing is rough. It's mostly like, it's most, most of the guys that are wearing suits in Boston are wearing suits to go to office jobs. Uh, it's still a very conservative place, both in terms of style, but also in terms of like spend, like people right. don't buy expensive. So like, I, I'm sure the sales associates that work in New York and Miami, like make way more, you know, Chicago even, um, probably do better than the Boston store, even though it's this beautiful, like world of Ralph mansion, um, it was just tough to sort of eke out a living. And I was pretty good. I was the, my first year there, I was the second highest men's seller in the men's department. Um, so I was doing well, but it, just, it still wasn't like, I was still just barely eking by. Um, and yeah. living in Cambridge, that's tough. Oh, totally, totally. It sounds a little like DC, kind of. I mean, of course, like there's mega money in DC. Yeah, that's... But like, it's, it's very... Um, people are not wearing fine clothing, you know, they're wearing a sort of uniform. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much the same. I think like Brooks brothers would always do a ton of business, you know, everybody, someone, you know, you know, whether they were a multi multi millionaire or just, you know, someone with a regular job, like they would all go to Brooks brothers. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to be droll, but what last week, we had photographic evidence of the president of the fucking United States going to Joseph A. Bank. Oh, so, Jesus. Dude, but that's Joe Biden. Yeah. He wears, he wears some Ralph. There's the, the documented photos of Biden and Ralph Lauren. Sport coats. He gets around, certainly, but like that's him, dude, is Amtrak Joe. Like He is uh, yeah. he masquerades oh, yeah. as an everyman, even though he is the president. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it bums me out that like this is the you know, this is the desire of even like, quote unquote, the most powerful person in the country. It's like, go get the, buy one, get 25 free. Right. A suit made by a child. So, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really surprise me that, that Boston along with DC are not the, uh, you know, bastions of tailored clothing that 
you might think they would be. Because I guess people don't care, basically. Like, they have the power, yeah. they just need to look a certain way. Um, and that way is not necessarily, like, elegant, but, like, d- domin- domineering, I guess. Right. Yeah, it's, an int- it's like... What I learned, actually, from selling men's clothing for a few years is that most men are really just like what they want is acceptability hell yeah right like mm-hmm. they want they want to they want to fit in and if if you can do that and have like maybe a subtle nod to like power um that's that's like a that's like the key right like it was interesting when i to go back to when i talked about when i was working at the investment bank like i gradually learned all these like subtle cues right like dudes would wear like joseph a bank suits but they would wear them with uh gucci bit loafers right or one thing was like cufflinks if you were a junior or like an associate banker you weren't supposed to wear cufflinks only the senior guys would wear cufflinks right or they'd wear like a regular old non-iron Brooks Brothers shirt, but they'd wear it with like an Hermes tie, right? Like those were sort of the moves um, in that world. There were very few dudes. There was one guy who wore a lot of like Isaia, um, but there were very few dudes who like power dressed or luxury dressed, even though they were well within the means to do so. Well, it's sort of frowned upon, like at least in my experience working in DC, like it's really frowned upon. And it's like, I would go as far as to say like slandered as being like homosexual. Uh, If you dress nicely, then like you're just kind of a weak person. You know what I mean? You need to be wearing the same suit every day, same tie, no variation. And that is your strength is the uniformity, class uniformity, basically. Yeah, there's an ele- definitely an element of that, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, I, you know, then there was me and uh, I got I remember the other thing that was really funny. This is just kind of a random story, but talking about like power dressing versus dressing for yourself versus like trying to stand out versus fit in. I went to grad school in like 2009, 2010. um, And I was super into suits while I was there. And I had this part-time job at a law firm and it was great. I did the same shit that I did at the investment firm, but I did it only like 20 hours a week um, after classes. I was a, it was a graduate degree. So it wasn't like I had a full day of classes every day. Um, and I would wear the one suit that I wore, I swear to God, was like a one-button Shantung silk, like em- emerald green suit from the 50s with like super pegged pants. And I wore it with like pointy black shoes and a super skinny black knit tie and a tab collar. And I looked like I was about to play in like Sam Cooke's band. Yeah, dude. Uh, and I would go to this like super conservative law firm uh, in the UK uh in scotland to uh to work every day and it was really funny because like i also didn't have like the the clothing language at that time to really know that what i was doing was totally outside the bounds of like how you're supposed to look in that environment even though you know it was i just thought i was wearing a suit everyone here is wearing a suit i'm wearing a suit that suit's blue my suit's green like it wasn't like a fully intentional like 
move to try and appear different. It was just like me being into that shit and thinking like, well, I got to wear a suit. Guess I'll wear my emerald green silk shantung. <laughs> like, I must have looked pretty wild to, to some people. I used to wear modern. We've lost him. Are you being Scotland? They didn't. They didn't have a ton of context. For- Madras was so they were like oh you're wearing tartan I'm like no this is Madras man yes yes exactly <laughs> well so I wanted to ask you because I did this a little bit later than you I'm 32 so I kind of came up wearing suits I was working for a congressman I wanted to wear a suit I bought it at Marshall's I didn't know what the fuck I was doing but later I was really peacocking and wearing like wild shit and like, it just didn't work out for me. You know what I mean? I don't know. Did people, did people, how do people perceive you? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Cause they, they didn't tell me. I imagine they perceive me as a little bit strange. Um, but it was also like I, in the position that I was in, in these places, like I was kind of an, not an outsider, but I was sort of a, you know, I was the help essentially. Like I was the guy who brought you your mail. So it's not like I was going to client meetings in oh, my sure. you weren't in the like room. Emerald Green sir. Like I wasn't. I, I wasn't really a person of consequence. And like I gradually sort of let that sort of allow myself to to wear what I wanted. Um, but I'm sure. I'm sure some folks in that environment might have looked at me sideways. Surely, yeah. I didn't really didn't really care about it. Well, the green the green <laughs> suit right, is right. But the green suit yeah. is verboten. That's like a, a yeah. big no no. And then obviously, like when I was working in clothing, it was a totally other, totally the opposite direction. Where it was like I felt like I needed to look really, really good in order to be able to to sell this stuff. And being at Ralph, like you know, I tied a pink sweater around my neck. Like I wore leather. I wore velvet slippers like i had I, at one point like i had so many damn suits it's so funny now because i have almost zero suits um but at one point i had like a whole room full of suits um and that was like my closet was like a spare bedroom and then and three of the four walls were lined with racks that were just covered in suits and they were all secondhand suits mm-hmm. um but you know what i mean like I, I would totally just go all out patterns and colors and the full ralph lauren look um and it was really funny because, like, looking back, like, I'd feel really confident and good in that in the store. But once you left the store, once you got on the sub, once you got on the T, once you were walking down the sidewalk, it was a little bit of a different feeling. And you're like, oh, man, like, <laughs> I look. I used to walk yeah. down the street in, like, a Panama hat and a white linen suit. Like, just, like, crazy shit, right? Like, and I, right, I, the, right. that was like, I wanted to be in menswear. So that was like my world, right? Like I felt like I needed to sort of look better and different. Um, and I've kind of like dialed that back so much that part of what I love about like true vintage to use the term that people are using nowadays or like canonical vintage, which is kind of what Whoa. I call it, is, is that like... <laughs> that's actually a great Yeah, term. dude. I've never heard that before. That's, like, that's fucking money. So, like, canonical vintage is just whatever's in those, like, Japanese books, right? Like, mm-hmm. lightning. And, you know, like, that's that's the canon. It's literally the body of written material that's de- defining what this stuff is. Um, but what I like about it, and I'm not, like, a, a stickler for only that stuff, but you can pick a look out of those elements and kind of be a little bit 
the same as someone who's wearing just normal clothes, right? Like you can wear, and this is kind of, this is kind of like, I know this wasn't a question, but like my, I feel like my personal like approach to things is a little bit on one hand, I'm kind of a collector. And then on the other hand, I'm kind of, I'm more into wearing the stuff than just like having it or having every example of a thing. Um, But like, take a simple look, like take a classic, like vintage look, right? White t-shirt, fatigue pants, denim jacket, right? There's a way to do that look for like a hundred bucks at J crew. There's a way to do that look in vintage for pretty cheap, right? You get like a decent white t-shirt, a pair of fifties or sixties khakis and like a Lee 101 or a regular old type three. And you can do that look for pretty cheap, you know, within vintage, or you can go totally crazy and wear like a pair of 1941 khakis and a type one jacket mm-hmm. and a some crazy right. white t-shirt. And it's really all the same look. It's just different, different details. And you can like get into that, but still be a, just a dude wearing a t-shirt and a denim jacket and not have it be this like look, this total look that's like screaming for attention. Um, and I think that's like, that's kind of a bigger a bigger change, which is not to say that I don't still enjoy wearing tailoring. I still like to occasionally, um, but it just like the canonical vintage stuff for me is just like, it satisfies those two things, right? And I think the other thing that's really interesting, like shift, like career-wise, attitude-wise, life-wise is like, I found myself in like a job in an environment where like, I didn't feel as much of an outsider and I kind of wanted to like, fit in with the world a little bit more um and that's how like and that and then that weirdly like brought me back to the stuff that i had originally liked with vintage in the first place the rock and roll stuff the 70s stuff gradually like the military stuff i started wearing boot cut jeans again for the first time in legitimately 20 years (laughs) like (laughs) you know what i mean i look at old photos of myself now from like 2002 i'm like oh i kind of look cool back then actually i had like pink tinted and a western shirt and like levi's 517s and cowboy boots you know and that was like my look back in way back when and now i'm like suddenly i can wear that stuff again i think it's kind of nice it's cyclical it's really cyclical yeah (laughs) we gotta go into the archives and get some of the pictures though we gotta see some of these outfits if you would yes please I'll see if I can dig them up. I, um, yeah, I'm sure there are a few of them on Facebook. Um, definitely on my old Tumblr. Mm-hmm. I used to do fit pics on my old Tumblr. That's a great place. Like I, I, I love because the other thing that's really funny is like the people that I work with and are friends with now like have no context for like that prior self when I used to wear like white bucks and bow ties every now and then. So like. If I want to blow someone's mind, I'll just like send them a photo of myself from 2012 in like a polo coat and a bow tie and white bucks and a tweed suit, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm almost positive that there is a picture of you in my Tumblr archive that I reblogged at some point. Oh, sure. I love Tumblr. I was never like very successful on it. I don't think I ever had very many followers. Um, but, but I love like- those. Yeah, it was a fun thing. And like, uh, I don't know, as far as social media goes now, like, I yearn for that type of thing again. Oh, hell it's yeah. just like, oh, a bunch of people like, you know, reblogging dumb shit and cool people that they they think look rad. 
Yeah, like, I do okay. miss I do miss Tumblr. It was so easy and like it carefree. Was. It was. And there's yeah, the, this was like pre-influencer. Mm-hmm. Although like the, the sort of the mainstream hashtag menswear guys had sort of been around at that point. Right, right. Yeah. Uh yeah, that that was a very uh specific and particular time for oh, yeah. fashion, I think. Yep. I remember everything was tailored. Everything was like tailored everything all the time. I had um, because like I was wearing, you know, a a tie and a jacket most days, but then I go back and I'll look at like shit that I archived and reblogged. And it's like, Oh, it's the same stuff that I, that I'm into now. Like I, I just wasn't dressing that way at that point. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Like I, I feel the same way when I, when I look at some of that stuff and I had started to get into like some of the quote unquote canonical vintage tumblers at the time too. And how that right. stuff sort of bleeds together. Yeah. So, uh, so going from Ralph and the Andover shop um, to becoming an international ad man, like ha- how did this happen? What did, uh, what drew you into the advertising world? Uh, yeah, it was kind of an organic thing, um, and it happened really gradually. It's almost like this could almost be like a whole other podcast, like the <laughs> the, mid, the midlife career jujitsu podcast, the the job switch. Um, yeah, so let me think. So, like, I'd always been into writing in general. Um, you know, I went to school for English. I got a master's in English. Um, when I was younger, I did a lot of creative writing, that kind of stuff. I went to like writers camps when I was a teenager where you would just like go to a college campus and like be a writer and then have like a reading at the end of the camp in a local coffee shop and feel really arty. Um, and I loved all that shit. Um, and I still do like writing and books and stuff. Um, so that was sort of always in the background. You know, I feel like when you have those inclinations as a kid, at least my parents were like, Oh, you should be a writer for a living. But that wasn't like, you should write copy for ads. They were like, you should be, a, my mom thought I should be a food critic or a screenwriter or a journalist. <laughs> um, you know, you should write the next star Wars trilogy. Like, sure. I'll just hop right out and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Call George. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just, yeah. Let me just get right on that. Um, That's what you moved. So that was kind of always in the, uh, no, the California move was kind of unrelated. Yeah, I'm joking. Um, I meant to write the Star Wars. Oh movie. yeah, yeah. To, to start my start my film career. Yeah. yeah <laughs> now I'm closer to Hollywood, Mom. It's going to happen. It's finally going to happen dude. for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So one thing that happened when I was at Ralph was like I wasn't making enough enough money in retail, and I loved the company. So I wanted to figure out if there were other things I could do in the company. Um, you know, and one thing they had us do, I don't know if, I don't know if you did this in your menswear work, Matt, but, um, they had this thing called the book of business, which is basically like a literal three ring binder of everyone you ever sold to and what they bought. And they would have us like for a few hours a week, or like there was a certain quota we had to hit where you would have to like go into the office. Cause there was only one computer, right? Or you could do it from your phone too, if you wanted to. Um, and you would have to like email a certain number of clients with like to attempt to get them to come to the store, whether it was for an offer or a sale or like come check out our new collection. It was usually 
really usually revolved around seasonal releases, new fabrics, whatever. Um, and so they used to make me do that, and I didn't. I didn't mind it. Um, you know, it felt like a good sales tool, but it also occurred to me like the script that they gave me was like this incredibly like florid and long-winded thing. And I sort of knew from like my experience in sort of the corporate America world that like that wasn't the most efficient or effective way to talk to people or to, to entice them. So I kind of rewrote the script, right? Um, okay. And then somehow that rewritten script got circulated. So people in other stores started using my script. Um, and with that, you know, that wasn't a big deal, but it just sort of planted the seed like, okay, if I'm going to be writing marketing emails for Ralph Lauren, why don't I go to corporate to their marketing department and make however many times more money writing marketing emails for Ralph Lauren? Um, right. I didn't even know that that was called copywriting at that point, but I just start like, I feel like, you know, I love this brand. I've been performing really well in the job that I have. I have a good relationship with my manager. Like, I want to see if I can make a move to corporate. Uh, and they had like an opening in the marketing department at the uh, Ralph Lauren kind of has its own internal ad agency. And I was like, great, this is perfect. Immediately rejected uh, because I had no agency experience. Um, right. So I was like, well, shit, I guess I'll go get some agency experience. Um, and that led me down this really long kind of you know, pothole filled path of like trying to figure out how to get it into an ad agency. You know, I was doing a lot of informational interviewing. I had like a pretty good like writing sample uh, because I'd been doing all the writing for Ivy style. I had all like the producty sort of pithy little paragraphs that I was writing for my Etsy store, Newton street vintage on Etsy. Occasionally I still get a message about it, which blows my mind. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I probably should have mentioned that Newton Street Vintage was also an Etsy store way, way back. Yeah. Um, I think and it I was, remember you from that. Like, yeah, I feel like I, I feel like that was that that like portrait of the dude in the bow tie. Occasionally, people still message me about it. Uh, there's one dude who's like using it as his avatar. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> it's like crazy. Um, so yeah, I had an Etsy store. So, but like I was right, you know, I was. You know, I take a whole day, right, to like write thirty product descriptions or whatever. Um, so I had a decent writing sample, um, and I learned that in order to get a job in advertising, you need a creative portfolio, right, a book of your work. And some people even go to school just to create that portfolio. There are portfolio schools where people who like it's they're not accredited universities, and you go there and you just learn how to make advertising. I knew I wasn't going to do that. I was 30. I had no money. I was already, I already had a graduate degree. I wasn't going to drop 20 grand on portfolio school. Um, so I had to like figure out another way in. Um, so I was like informational interviewing and, uh, you know, reading books about copywriting. And this is on the side while I was still working at Ralph. Um, and then I happened to meet someone at a brunch who was just looking for someone to do some marketing writing. And I was like, okay, I'll do it for free. And that led to like a semi part-time thing where I went to their office and like did some really basic copywriting. Um, and right. so that was like another step, right? And then from there, I got really lucky and I just met a guy, like I was just trying to meet people who worked in the field. Um, and I met someone who was 
in the position that I'm at now in an ad agency. And he was looking for basically a low level copywriter. Um, the dude they had was quitting and they needed someone quick. And I was like, I'm 30. I'll take an internship. Like, and I literally volunteered to, to be like an intern. Um, but it ended up being a full-time job and that how, that's how I got my first agency job that got me agency experience. And then from there, it's much easier to go to other places and do other things once you have that like foothold. Oh, so yeah, oh, that yeah. that's copywriting. Yeah. So this may be a little broad of a question. Uh, I was going to ask you what you thought about advertising, but then I'm going to revise it and say, what do you think about advertising in menswear? It's a good question. I, you know, I don't really pay that much attention to advertising in menswear. They're it's like really separate. Not there, right? It seems like yeah, there is. Of- it's, it's not the same. There's a lot of content marketing in menswear. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of it's garbage. Um, like a lot of content marketing in anything is, um, but I don't, there isn't like a ton of like marketing advert, like nobody's doing Super Bowl commercials for right. the men's warehouse or J crew, right? right? Like it's just a different, right. it's just a different world. You know, a lot of it's digital advertising, right? Like I get retargeted. I've been retargeted for those giant fit chinos about 10,000 times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that sort of, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. But there isn't a lot of like pure, like brand advertising. And at least not that I can think of. I'm sure like in menswear, sort of when we, when we say like our sort of little world of menswear, I'm sure there are like Nike ads and stuff. Um, but I don't think that's what. That's not what you mean when you say like menswear, right? Mm, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You took the question. Funny, like you took the question I, the right way. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. I. It's interesting too. Like I, I haven't. I don't work on on any like menswear, even menswear adjacent accounts. That's not true. There's one that's that's sort of similar to that. Kind of might tip over into that realm, but. Um, for the most part, my work doesn't have anything to do with menswear. So I don't pay a ton of attention to, and also since I got more into vintage, like I'm less hip to like what's happening with brands. Like I still read the, I still read, you know, dye workwear and, you know, I still pay attention to, to some of that stuff, but I'm less like cued into what's going on than, um, than I was back in the day. And I also feel like it's so fragmented now. Like everything's sort of its own little niche, right. uh, but yeah, yeah, I stick to my stick to my own little little enclave. Yeah, Connor and I have talked just you know kind of in the run up to um, to launching the Apocalypse Studs podcast, like just about how important like Mad Men was for a plethora. Of oh yeah, the clothing industry, and like even you know even when I was like in new york and working in menswear like the copy was always such a like huge part of whatever the fuck was going on and so it's really funny to like think about that now 10 years on in the context of like it doesn't really matter anymore yeah no that's so these companies don't have to advertise it's blowing my mind yeah because what's so funny is like like mad men I was obsessed with Mad Men. I used to go to Mad Men parties. Actually, one of the oh, reasons, like, yeah, like, all of us did. <laughs> yeah, 
like I used to real smoke and like <laughs> like go to Mad Men parties. There, there are definitely pictures of me on Facebook in like a trilby hat and a fake cigarette and like a shark skin suit. Um, I was I was already into that stuff when Mad Men dropped, so I was like psyched right. to see that stuff on TV. Even though looking back, some of it wasn't the most like authentic, but like that whole yeah, world, totally. and then it just kind of took off. Then all of a sudden, it was like really like you bring it up and I, to- I had totally forgotten about it. Like it's like Mad Men, the, sort of the combination of Tom Brown and Mad Men helped make suits like cool. Right. right. Every dude, exactly. even if you weren't into like specific 60 suits, like you wanted a fucking tie bar because of Mad Men. You wanted like a pocket square folded into a white sliver because of Mad Men. Right. Like that. Yeah whole thing which i totally forgotten about the other thing that's really interesting like my interest like loving Mad Men or being super into Mad Men, like so predated me trying to get into advertising that i totally they don't even connect in my mind (laughs) like oh that's yeah like like, i feel like you almost can't parse the two because like for for the blogosphere generation of like menswear people or clothing people or whatever, like Mad Men was such a like such a mainstay. Yeah, and maybe the first like you know it's obviously it's a fictional show, but like it kind of um, for a generation of people probably opened their eyes to what copywriting and advertising actually is. Kind of. Yeah, so, I, so, I like, buy that. Yeah, totally. And I people. Yeah. How many of those people were like, oh, fuck, I can do this because I watched Don Draper do it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's really funny to me that that like, you know, you're you're kind of uh, straddling that line between the two things, but they don't really connect for you. Yeah. Just the different phases in my life, I guess, even though like they're not separated by that many years, like it just wasn't like I was watching Mad Men for the clothes. Like, yes, they were in advertising. That was just the world they were. That was what they worked in. But it wasn't like, hey, how do I get in that? How do I get that job? It was like, hey, how do yeah. I get that lapel? Right. Well, it's still funny. Like, I tell people, uh, it's like, I tell people I'm a copywriter. Like, technically, I'm an associate creative director. I, ACD. Creative director is kind of those weird titles. Um, yeah. yeah. Don Draper was a creative director. Mm. Um, like when people ask what I do, I, I tell them, I'm, oh, I'm a copywriter. And sometimes they know what that is. And other times they go, oh, so you like copyright infringement things? And I'm like, no, no, different copyright. Uh, so like the shorthand is like, to this day, like if somebody doesn't quite understand or, or isn't familiar with like advertising as a job, I'll be like, do you ever watch Mad Men? I do what Don Draper did, except usually I'll tell them that I do what Peggy did because that's actually probably closer to the truth. Yeah, 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 Peggy's sure. the true genius Not of the show. Peg, Peggy, Peggy, yeah, right. Like every, you know, people are like, oh, and and then the other thing is like if people say compare me to Don Draper, I'll I'll say that I'm Peggy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes <laughs> um, sense. But it's funny because the the vibe of the ad world is nothing, nothing like that show anymore at oh, all. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and I think that might be why like, the connection is less overt for me because they just seem right, like such yeah. un- totally different universes. You're not um, having a whiskey. Oh, God, I forgot. Anymore. Yeah, I forgot how much I love that show and how much we would have like oh, Mad Men watching parties 
and just like just the clothes and, and everybody everything. was like, smoking the lucky strikes and i was drinking a yeah, lot of yeah. pikesville rye which like they drink in the yeah, show, which is yeah. bottom shelf in real life yeah i bought a pair of lucky uh, a pair uh, uh, a box of lucky strikes once and didn't realize they were filterless <laughs> oh that's the joy <laughs> i was not i was not a i was not a smoker i thought I, this was back in college i thought i was being cool and I was like drunk one night and went into the Seven Eleven and bought a pack of Lucky Strikes. When I was usually, what I usually would have been smoking was cloves because I oh, was that no, guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was an artist, nice. um, nice. but I wanted because uh, I, I, probably not because of Mad Men because that wasn't a thing yet. Um, but I, I, I wanted to try Lucky Strikes and I forgot they were filterless or didn't even realize they were filterless. Yeah. So that no was a longer, gross evening. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you about your rug slash blanket collection. When did you realize you could buy whatever rug you wanted or blanket? Uh, So it's really funny. I feel like there's a miss. Like if you were just to like, if you were to look at my Instagram photos and try and extrapolate what the rest of my house looks like, that is entirely 2000% not the case. Um, so I work from home and like we moved to California, um, and our house, I, we, I like, I like where we live. Um, but it still has like a hodgepodge of furniture. We've got two young kids. So like our couch is just like a stain proof dog proof blob of a couch. I do not at all live like a curated life by any stretch. Um, but I wanted there to be this, like, since I work from home, I wanted it to just be like this cool corner of my office that felt like my shit, right? Literally just like one wall. Um, so it wasn't even meant to initially meant to be like an Instagram backdrop. I was like, I've got this cool portrait that my friend painted. Mm. I've got this cool, uh, Mars poster. Uh, the blankets kind of came later. Um, I got this desk in the corner. Like, I want to try and make that as cool as I can because that's where I'm going to sit and work during the day. And like, the kids aren't in there as much, so like, stuff's not going to get wrecked. Um, so those blankets, I'm not uh, like I, I have. A, I feel like I have a decent eye for uh, those camp blankets and the rug, but I'm not by no means like a like a Navajo Western expert mm. by any stretch. Um, I didn't know how deep it went. No, it's pretty, it's pretty shallow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like I got a few of those blankets They're They're for whatever reason, they're much easier to find out here on the West coast. Of course. Um, probably because we're closer to that part of the world than. Um, so they're easier to find at like flea markets. There's a really good vintage market in the San Francisco area at Alameda that happens once a month. Um, the vintage culture out here is much more like show driven uh, we can talk about that. It's got pros and cons. Um, but so there's a, there's a, there's fewer like awesome vintage stores, at least up where I am, um, than there were back in Boston, uh, which feels contradict counterintuitive, but it, in my experience, it's true. Uh, but there are a lot of really good flea markets and vintage shows. Um, so anyway, that's how I like amassed the blankets, and like I use them as blankets sometimes if we go to the beach or whatever. But they look nice folded there. Uh, and then I was like, one thing when I really started doing the fit picks, um, back when I worked in Boston, the agency where I still work has this really cool, like warehouse office, like, like you do. Um, and 
it had this really cool like stairwell and there was this sort of window ledge that was at perfect height and I would walk up the stairs because it was only a third floor, third floor office. Um, you know, and I'd stop and it would be super easy and quick just to like flip my phone, set it on the ledge, take a fit pick and then head back upstairs to work. So like, it wasn't like a big produced deal, which I don't want my like fit picks to be like that. Like I, I, I'm not going to go out on a shoot and pretend to be a model. Like, so like, it was like that nice little moment of like, okay, I could take a quick pick. I can post it. I can get that serotonin, you know, and then, and then go about my day. Um, and I, you know, when, when I moved out here and started working from home, I kind of lost that stairwell. So I was like, okay, where am I going to take fit picks now? So I like experimented with a few different places. And then I realized like that little corner, like totally makes sense. I can just take a snap, and then I, my desk's right there and I can just post the photo and go back to work. Um, so that's kind of the blankets and the rug. The rug I found on Etsy. Uh, I love the colors. I don't know how old it is. Um, I it's checked. It's pretty sure it's like legitimately Navajo made. Mm-hmm. Um, like there are lots of made in Mexico knockoffs yeah. of Navajo rugs. So I did a little bit of research on how to spot those. Um but it looks legit and it wasn't too expensive and it, it looks nice on the floor. Uh, and it is surrounded on all sides by just like chaos and Nerf guns and <laughs> like yeah. half eaten, half eaten cookies and dog toys and whatever else. Um, so I had, that's like my one little corner of the house and everything else is kind of like very kid oriented or very just like functional non curated. Um, but yeah, that's my, those are the blankets. Excellent. That's it. Yeah. So uh, while we were researching, um, we saw on your website, you say you finally arrived at the perfect answer for quote unquote, why vintage. And so we were just wondering if you could clue us into that. Yeah. I don't. So one thing that's weird about, uh, people in my line of work is like, there's this weird pressure to have like quirky personal things on your portfolio site. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like I sort of agonized about my portfolio site from like, (laughs) like, do I sound lame? Um, even more about like that than like the actual work that's on there. Um, but yeah, that was an idea that I had, um, people always ask me like people who aren't into vintage, who don't like already know about it. Like, well, what is it? Why do you like it? Like you can, you know, you tell someone you're wearing a pair of pants from World War II and they go, what? Like, those are from World War II. Like, what does that mean? Like, it totally, like, you know, it's like, and I could try to find like a, like a way to explain it or like, you know, and you sort of, you can say like, oh, well, I'm really into history, but that doesn't quite get at it. Right. Like mm-hmm. I do, I do like history, but I'm not like, I'm not wearing this stuff because I want to be like a living historian you're not a reenactor or anything like that. Yeah, I, like I don't. That's not my thing. Um, so I was like, "Well, why do like what is it about vintage clothing?" Like, and I wanted to come up with an explanation that was like interesting, right? Like, and the way that I sort of like the like the way that I think about it is like, do you know why people? And this is totally roundabout, but like, do you know why it's hard to sell a house that someone's been murdered in? Mm. <laughs> Like, even though rational, like if a house has been, if a murder has happened in a house, it depreciates the value of the house. Um, 
And the reason isn't anything rational, right? Like there's no, it doesn't like the mathematical likelihood of a murder happening there again, doesn't go up. Like even if there are no visible signs, it still affects that house. There's something that's like retained in a non-rational, almost spiritual way in in a house. Yeah. Well, (laughs) in a way. Yeah. Um, And I feel like that there's something about that in vintage clothing that clothes sort of retain, and this is going to sound foofy, but like retain the energy or the spirit or something of, of the past. And it's not necessarily like a rational historical, Oh, this was made in X, Y, Z for X, Y, Z purpose. And like, it's more of that like energy. And I think it's the reason why vintage clothes feel like meaningful and full of life and something that's brand new on a rack feels sort of lifeless. Like these are, these have sort of already been inhabited. They're things that have already been used and worn. And that actually gives them life instead of like expending their, their life. Um, And I'm not saying in in like a literal sense, like I don't like put on a P-44 jacket and become a Marine or like put on a cowboy hat and become a cowboy, but there's an energy to these things or a sense of them that sort of gets retained. And it's also kind of the reason why vintage people aren't into repros because you can't reproduce that. Even if you do a stitch by stitch reproduction, even if you've got the same machine and the same thread and it, you can't create that again. It, it It's something that only can be imbued through time and use. Um, and I think that is the answer that I've like arrived at. It's not history. It's not patina. Um, it's not, I want to look like I'm from the past and not from the present. It's that sense of like murder house energy mm-hmm. where something is retained. <laughs> something is retained yeah. that can't quite be explained. But once you're into it, once you sense it, you know it, right? Yeah. Our, our previous guest to you, actually, um, on his Instagram bio, he says he wears, he wears dead people's clothes. And I think that that is like that, – that kind of sums it up too a little bit differently. And I think, yeah, it's, yeah. it's character, right? Yeah, and not even necessarily physical character. But yeah, it's like – it's almost just like – and maybe it's more about sort of the way the wearer feels or like thinks about things, but it's really, yeah, that relationship to, to time, right. To, um, that, that like somehow these like traces of lived experience, like live on in the clothes, um, in sort of a non-literal sense. Yeah, of course. So that perfectly leads into our final question here. Uh, which is oldest piece slash favorite piece. You can give two answers or you can give one answer. Um, but we're curious about, about that sort of thing. Oh yeah. Uh, oldest piece is easy. Um, I don't have anything super old. I'm not like a 1900s workwear guy. Mm. I don't have any chin straps. <laughs> My oldest piece is probably a 1941 uh, U.S. Army denim chore jacket. Which is pretty old. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with the zinc buttons and all that good stuff. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's up there, but it's probably not my favorite piece. Okay. Um, let me think about my favorite piece for a second. It's so interesting. Like the, 
the pieces that you find tend to like stay top of mind or be your favorites, but then they're not necessarily the pieces that you wear a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cause um, there's the hunt, right. And then there's like yeah. the practicality of wearing something. Yeah. And it's also like the rarer something is, do you really mm-hmm. like wear it all the time? Or is it like, do you, do you, are you a little bit more precious with it? I, I mean, I try not to be, but um, I'd say my favorite piece, my like never sell, it's probably my Levi's type two jacket, um, which there's no great story behind. I bought it on eBay, um, but I bought it on eBay before type two jackets became just insanely prohibitively ridiculously priced. Um, but also just like, it fits me really well. Like I wore it when we drove across the country. I have cool memories in it. Like it goes with lots of stuff. Like I feel like if I wanted to, like if my style shifts a little bit, I could still figure out a way to work a type two jacket into it. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably my favorite. Were you you going to ask about the the Hunter S. Thompson jacket? (laughs) We consider it. (laughs) I just, I literally just traded that. I put it in the mail today. It's no longer mine. (laughs) What? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's no longer, it's no longer in my possession. It is currently en route to its new owner. Wow, dude. I would have never thought. I thought like that was I thought probably you were going to say that was your favorite piece. We do sort of anticipate answers when we're writing these questions. And I figured yeah, no, I, I naturally got... lead into it, you know? Yeah, no, I was definitely it was nice to have. Um But yeah, no, it's not I don't think I call it my favorite. I mean, it wasn't low on the list. <laughs> of course, but like, it wasn't like I mean, no, it wasn't. You know, like Sophie, Sophie's choice that are the ty- that are the type two. Mm. Like that's not a hard. It's not a hard one. Yeah, well, it's a yeah. very impractical piece. You know, it's extremely loud. It's very like recognizable. So I feel like it would be a challenge to wear that like on a regular basis without looking clownish, unless you were Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, I was. It was less like I had some weird experiences wearing that jacket. Um, <laughs> online and in person um and it was less about the clownishness for me because like coming from like the iv patch this patch that Mm. world like that coat feels very and i think that was kind of like the original intent of that jacket was to be sort of a go to hell adjacent kind of thing and it sort of got co-opted by counterculture and hunter s thompson yeah um i'm not a huge hunter s thompson fan i don't have anything against hunter s thompson i'm just not like a member of the Hunter S. Thompson fan club. Like it's just not okay. Not my thing. Um but like I like the coat, you know, and I it's so warm out here. Like when the hell am I gonna wear a a patchwork corduroy coat to work from home? Oh, like sure. to walk it's the dog. Climate impressive. Like, right. Yeah. Um and the loudness was a factor too. Like you can only wear it with so many other patterns. Um but yeah, that was that that wasn't on the that wouldn't be my favorite. That wouldn't be that wouldn't make the favorite the favorite item list. Mm. Especially now that it's no longer mine. <laughs> Zach, I I do have one follow-up to this Hunter S. Thompson coat yeah. discussion. Um if and and feel free to say no to this, but 
if you want to divulge, what was the most absurd monetary offer you you got for that thing? Oh, uh, there wasn't there wasn't a lot. Um, okay. No, it, it wasn't absurd. Um, I got a lot of attention in a weird way having that, and it felt like there right. was like weird hype around it. Um, right. I would love that fucking thing, and I feel like I am insane enough to wear but, it. <laughs> yeah, so was I. But like, uh, you know, and it's uh, I mean, it's loud, but they're all like pretty basic colors. Yeah, there, yeah. tan, red. Yeah, I mean, true, true. Um, uh, I got a lot of comments about it. I got a lot of like inquiries, but I never got like crazy cash offers. Honestly, if I had, okay. I probably would. I probably might have sold it. Like I'm. Right. I'm I'm in my late thirties. I have two kids. Like I know, I know where my priorities are, um, yeah. but you know, I didn't, I didn't get any like crazy. So I ended up trading okay. it to a friend for some good, for some good stuff. Um, right, right. So, but yeah, I so wasn't like. Outside of monetary offers, what's the most ridiculous thing you got offered for it? Um, I had a guy who was like, who when I, th- I I tried to scare him away with a large number and it didn't work <laughs> and the conversation <laughs> continued, um, which made me nervous because I was like, oh man, how far can I take this? Um, and we were talking like four thousand dollars. Oh wow! Um, yeah. yeah, and like I don't know exactly what it's worth. I don't. I know what I paid for it. Like, and it's fine. Um, but. Yeah, that wasn't the kind of like attention that I got. It was more like more generic, like for sale, bro, for sale, bro, for sale, bro, oh, for yeah. sale, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like, like a three D album T shirt. <laughs> yeah, um, and then like a lot of weird like Hunter S. Like somebody messaged me and told me that owning the coat doesn't make me Hunter S. Thompson, which felt weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> I felt like that wasn't something that I was implying. Um, but yeah, thanks, yeah. thanks for letting me know. Um, but I just like, there was like a weird, like energy, like people would like come up to me and ask me about it. Like not even like people that I was interacting with at the time, but like people would cross the street to ask me about it or like, it was, it was a lot. I'm kind of an introvert. So like, I'm not into those kind of interactions, Um, but it was like, it was a little, it was a lot. Um, but plus like the, the friend that I traded to, like, I know he's going to love it. Like it makes sense. The deal made sense. So, you know. And once it's gone, I don't I don't miss things. I feel like that's one of the things about vintage that like I'm not a hoarder. Like I love and and, and as I've like gotten like advanced in my career or whatever, like I've definitely spent more on vintage and like liked enjoyed collecting like rarer things. But like I don't think that's important to style necessarily. I think style is something totally different. Um, oh, and I also good. don't hoard. Like I don't need three of everything. I don't need a giant stack of like, cause I'm not a reseller. So like I'm only buying stuff in my size. Like, you know, so I, you know, I, I don't need to hoard stuff like, right. you know, so it, it, and it, it makes it fun to like sell stuff. Cause now I have like the funds and like the anticipation of like what I'm going to get next. So it's a little bit of a revolving door, but it's like, to me, that's more fun than just like what the vintage game sometimes feels like which is just like who's got the biggest stack yep yep well zach this has been a a really fun conversation and um yeah i 
I'm stoked that we had the chance to talk to you and thank you for coming on. Yeah, this was so great. It's, uh, you know, I've, I follow you both and, uh, great to put, like I said, put names and voices to faces. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. This was like a great, this was, this was like the best lunch break I've had in a long time. Oh, dude, you are too fucking kind. That is too nice. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, uh, before we go, Zach, do you want to plug anything for yourself? Uh, I mean my Instagram at Newton Street Vintage. Um, but that's oh. that's it. I'm not dropping oh. an album or anything. I don't have a don't have an artisanal denim collection coming out or anything like that. So <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Follow Zach <laughs> for the clothes and stick around for the the memes. Yeah, if you want to see so. me take a picture in the exact same two foot square of my house every single day for the next, follow me at <laughs> follow me at Newton Street Vintage. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Connor Fowler. And we are at Apocalypse Studs on Instagram, um, at apocalypsestuds at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, concerns, whatever the fuck. And yeah, uh, thanks to you all for following along. Zach, thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me. All right.